privilege to gather together as family. Thank you for North Christian Church, this local assembly that affords us this ability to do so. Thank you for the peace and the quiet that it provides. Thank you for the spiritual gifts that make it run. Thank you for enabling all of them and empowering them and affording such spiritual gifts to the congregation by your spirit. Thank you for your grace and your love, Father. And thank you for constantly reminding us through scripture and by means of the convicting ministry of your spirit that these things are given to us in an abundance we can't even understand, we can't even comprehend fully. But for whatever degree we're able to, we are to rejoice always and give thanks and everything, for that is your will, Father, and that in of itself is a blessing. May we never become familiar with the simple things, especially the simplicity and purity of devotion to your Son, our Lord and Savior, for which we are most grateful and thankful for, who you sent to die on a cross to cancel out that debt against us. With all of that in mind, we just ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is why are the apostles so encouraging by grace they were prepared part nine this past week uh, like i said has been wonderful uh, it served as a tremendous reminder of some very basic yet profound facets of living in god's grace for starters the very source of our rejoicing is his grace i want to show you something this morning that popped out of scripture as I was preparing this lesson for you, the very source of our rejoicing is His grace. I think that a lot of people say, yay, and they focus on this instead of the giver. And if you just focus on this, you lose sight of the grace. You become familiar of who gave it to you. And when you become familiar with the person who gave it to you, everything falls apart. Everything starts to disintegrate. Nothing makes sense anymore. You start veering off the beaten path, the, the, the narrow road, so to speak. Nothing makes sense anymore if you lose sight of the giver, which really, if you know Scripture, says that Jesus Christ was the fullness of grace and truth. And so you have to think of grace that way, and it becomes of the very source of our rejoicing. I mean, at least it ought to be. Assuming we're not off chasing some counterfeit that the God of this world has tempted us with. I mean, most of us let that stuff into our souls. Uh, counterfeits. Pretend grace. Pretend goodies that aren't actually from God. They're from the world. And we let it into our souls. And we tolerate it. And it's no good. And we wonder why we veer off the narrow road. So the Spirit's been giving us perspective on this topic a lot of time on one of my personal favorite passages, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Joy, a la 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, comes from appreciating the things that God has given us by grace. 
You know, I would, I would venture to guess, and it doesn't even matter if it's believer or unbeliever, I would venture to guess that um, most people, when asked, you know, what is it that you seek in life? I, you know, I just want to be happy. I want to be content. I want to be solid. I want to be grounded. I want to be loved. Um, the way Paul wrote it in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he said it very simply. Rejoice always. Just imagine that being your status quo, your life. Just being able to rejoice always. Not sometimes, not fleetingly, not for as long as the newness of this thing lasts, and then it's the next thing, then you, you buy a remote doorbell because you think it's cool. Just, mm, mm, mm. Michael! Or you get your new pen. I remember there was a time when, did anybody cross pens? Remember those? These like kind of hefty, awesome like pens. People were spending $50 for a pen because they're stupid, right? But it was cool for a while, then you're like, mm, whatever. Until the newness wears off. That's no way to live. That's not rejoicing always. That's rejoicing fleetingly at best. And that's the source of this world. Those are the counterfeits that we let into our souls. And we chase them like little rabbits after carrots. And it's unfortunate because it's the antithesis of what Paul's writing here. It's very simple. Rejoice always. Well, how does that work? Well, you appreciate the grace of God. That's how. You're here. Aren't you? Some of you are like, whoa, half. <laughs> Last night was a rough one. You're here by the grace of God. Amen? That in of itself. You're being fed the very bread of life. There's no charge. There's no nothing. You're just being fed. So you suck. And your belly's swelling. You're all, you know, no offense, but fat, dumb, and happy. You know the saying. And you're just sitting there. That alone should be enough to rejoice. Because that's by God's grace. So let me show you something about this word rejoice that uh, I kind of dug out of scripture for you. Uh, in the original language, it's Cairo. Some of you already, your antenna just went up and said, oh, I know that root word, car. It's the same one that charis comes from, which is translated often as grace. So this idea of rejoicing from Cairo, from the root car, favorably disposed, leaning towards, and a cognate, obviously, with charis, which means grace properly, to delight in God's grace, to rejoice, literally, to experience God's grace and favor, be conscious, glad for His grace. In brief, Cairo, rejoicing, rejoice always, means being glad for grace. It doesn't mean being glad for the thing. It means being glad for God's grace in your life. It means remembering the person who gives those things to you. And that's what it means to rejoice always. That's the source, if you would, of rejoicing always. It means to be glad for grace. If you don't fully understand the point the Spirit's making here, then let me assist you a little further. The command to rejoice always, and again, we talked about this. Yes, it's a command. You might consider it a soft command because it seems kind of straightforward seems like something natural that God would say, rejoice always, obviously. But once you understand the root word, that it means glad for grace, 
It, me, it also implies then that you are to remember God's grace. And that is the source of rejoicing. That is the source of the blessing of rejoicing. So this command, uh, and it is a command, is inherently and absolutely tied to grace. In other words, up here on the board, rejoicing in grace as is the case with any other command in the Bible, God's command to rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, is first made possible by His grace. That's the beauty of it. That if you want this gift, I mean, raise your hand if you don't want to rejoice always. I mean, if you, if you want this gift, then you have to understand that it's being glad for grace. But yet, since it's grace-oriented, since it's made possible by grace, we actually have to receive it first. Hmm. God never commands anything of the, let's call it the human condition, only after His grace provides the ability by grace through faith. That's when He makes commands. If He says rejoice always, He's not going to say good luck with it. He's going to say Rejoice always, I've given you the grace. All you have to do is remember that and keep that perspective. Hold it. Be steadfast in it. Keep that perspective and you will rejoice always because there's so much to be grateful for. Oh, and by the way, verse 18, for that is God's will in you, for you in Christ Jesus. Always giving thanks for everything. Hmm. A little more on that rejoicing in grace. In fact, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the very act of rejoicing, now concentrate, the very act of rejoicing is not only enabled by grace, but the object of our rejoicing is also grace. Grace, in essence, becomes spherical. I talk about you know living in the sphere of grace and love. Living the gospel reality, even. It's just another format of the same concept. Grace, in essence, becomes spherical, all-encompassing, a function of God's enveloping love, both cause and effect. Now, that's really hard to teach. Again, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the very act of rejoicing is not only enabled by grace, but the object of our rejoicing is also grace. So by grace, you have the blessing to rejoice, and then what are you rejoicing in? Grace. Grace, in essence, becomes spherical, all-encompassing, a function of God's enveloping love, both cause and effect. And, and I'm just being transparent here. I tried for about five minutes to come up with a close enough analogy to help illuminate this in your souls. And the Spirit basically put the kibosh on the effort. He essentially said, which he says sometimes, don't mess this up. Trust me on this one. I will teach the humble. I said, okie dokie. And I moved on. It's a heavy thing, in other words. It's a big thing, this point on the board, to understand what he's trying to convey. So take the time this afternoon and beyond to ponder these two precious pearls. Again, rejoicing in grace. As is the case with any other command in the Bible, God's command to rejoice always is first made possible by His grace. 
And then, in fact, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the very act of rejoicing is not only enabled by grace, but the object of our rejoicing is also grace. So grace becomes spherical, all-encompassing, enveloping, as a part of God's love, both cause and effect. That's why we have these you know, funky terms in theology called like grace orientation. That's all it really means. To rejoice always implies that you're grace-oriented. Because a grace-oriented person doesn't forget where they came from, remembers the grace of God, remembers how He's delivered them out of the throes of spiritual death even. Remembers all those things daily. And that's why, we can, that's why the Word of God says always. As you spend some time pondering these principles, remember the word of caution we received from the Spirit this past week on the topic of familiarity. Well, well then, if it's, so, if it's so obvious and it's so magnificent, why don't we just do it? Why do some of you come in here with sour pusses on your face? Why were some of you miserable yesterday? Seriously. Why have some, why, why some of you been miserable for years? What, if it's that easy, why doesn't everybody do it? I would argue if you've been saved during that time and you're, you know, literally a crank, you're probably familiar. That's the only thing. I mean, let's face it. You're familiar. You've become familiar with the grace of God. How can you possibly be a miserable crank in the presence of God's grace? Unless you've forgotten about the presence of God's grace. That's what we call familiarity. It's a plague. And it brings us down low. It brings us really low. The plague of familiarity. We remain conscious of outside stimuli when we don't have confidence in its consistency, purity, predictability. I gave you the seat of the pants analogy where you've been sitting there. By now, you're probably not thinking about the feeling of the seat on your bum because you don't have to, because it's predictable. It's consistent. You're sitting. You don't have to. you got other things, right? Other stimuli you're processing. It's a good thing. But spiritually speaking, it's a bad thing. Because we can get really familiar and forget about the most consistent, pure, predictable things in our lives. And that's how you become familiar, especially with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Scripture says in Hebrews 13.3, I think, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we sort of write it off and go, uh-huh. Let's desensitize ourselves to this reality. But that's a plague. Until the normalcy of something is disturbed, our conscious attention of it is minimal, dismissive even. So ask yourselves, throughout the course of your life, who have you become most familiar with? And don't just think about Jesus Christ, because I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ should be everyone's first answer. But think of other people as well. Who have you become the most familiar with in your life? And I'd be willing to bet it is those who have loved you the most. That would be my bet. Now, it's between you and the Lord. That's just me helping guide you, you know, driving the bus. <laughs> Look out the windows. But who have you become most familiar with? I would argue that it was the most faithful, the most loving people in your lives. Paul wrote of this, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I mean, 
anyone can stake a claim to laying down his life for, for others outside of Jesus, it's got to be Paul, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And that was a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer was an emphatic yes, because that's exactly what happens. That's the plague. I'll give you the message. I'd be most happy to empty my pockets, even mortgage my life for your good. So how does it happen that the more I love you, the less I'm loved? Well, this is what the Spirit's been trying to teach us. We get familiar with God's grace. And God's grace, remember, works through individuals. We're all vessels. And you have loved ones in your lives by the grace of God. Again, the challenge on the table is who, who have you become most familiar with in your lives? And just to be fair, as part of this experience, also consider the other side, who has become the most familiar with you over the years? What you'll find is that there is a very strong correlation between the ones you've shown the most love to and the ones who have taken you for granted. It's just the way it is. If you love someone more, they get familiar with you. If your love is consistent, persistent, true, faithful, as those things increase, the more familiar people tend to get. Obviously, the most obvious example, arguably, is children becoming familiar with their parents. That seems to be the obvious choice, at least. I mean, we're all children of somebody. And some of you are like, I never got familiar with my parents because they were schmucks. It's really hard to get familiar with them. They were kind of like train wrecks. They were over here, they were over there, they were all going on, right? And I'm not saying that, but just go with it. You understand how easy it would be if you do have good, loving, faithful parents, how easy it would be to become familiar with them. How often do we see loving, attentive parents discarded by their kids? Go to Ephesians 6.1. Ephesians 6.1. It's just an example of this kind of familiarity. Who have you become the most familiar with? Who's become the most familiar with you? I mean, you can't answer that 100%, but you have a sense of it. Ephesians 6, 1. We're just talking about the what I would consider one of the most obvious examples, which is children being familiar with their parents. Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is what? Right. You see? Because it's the right thing to do. It's not this adolescent, well, you know, they've been PO-ing me and I'm just going to be like a little brat. No, it's the right thing to do, to obey your parents. What does verse 2 say? What's the very first word? Honor. Oh, you mean it's, it's beyond just following the rules in the house? You bet. It's the Greek word tamao. It means to fix the value of. Focus on that. That's what honor means here. Fix the value of. Honor them and set it. God gave you them as your parents. Set this thing in your soul. Etch it in your soul that you are to honor them. 
your father and your mother. Set the price, set the value, if you would, of your parents and leave it there. That's what honor means. Which is, by the way, the first commandment with a promise. So that's a, we're going to, I'm going to show you that in a moment. Which is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you. Ah, oh, wait a minute, what? So I got to obey and honor other people so it's well with me? Yeah, exactly. So some of you that are holding grudges with your parents or just like the average idiot kid nowadays that just totally abuses the grace that comes from their parents who have been exceptionally faithful in many cases to their children. And the kids just take total advantage of them. You're not really, it does hurt the parents when they have to swallow this pill. But the, the idea that Scripture is saying, it's not Pastor Ed's opinion. This is Scripture. You're looking at it. It's so that it may be well with you that you obey and honor your parents. So that it's well with you. And that you may live long on the earth. The Ephesians 6.2 parentheses, the one that says, which is the first commandment with a promise, honor your father and mother, is a reference to the Ten Commandments. Up here on the board, I'll give you this. Exodus 20.12, where it appears. It says, honor your father and your mother that, and here's the promise if you do, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That would have been considered a blessing. Remember the context, right? Old Testament times, being given land, uh, long longevity, uh, lots of kids. These were all things that were highly valued as blessings. And that's what he's saying. This is the first command of the ten that actually has a promise tied to it. Honor your father and mother, and you'll be blessed. You. Is it a blessing to them? Sure it is. Because I, you know, my kids were pretty good. I mean, they had their moments, but uh, I can't imagine having an awful child that is disrespectful of me. You know what I'm saying? That would be awful to deal with. Someone who I felt would take advantage of my goodness and my faithfulness and my love. That's an awful realization. So this is what the Spirit's saying. The Spirit's saying this is how familiarity works. In many cases, it's the most loving people that we become the most familiar with. And when that happens, all of a sudden there's a vacuum in our soul. Do you understand? We miss out on the blessing. The Scripture says that we benefit. We are blessed. It's in, it's in the Ten Commandments, for crying out loud, that we are blessed when we submit and honor our parents. But it's really easy to get familiar with our parents, especially when they are faithful. So being our Creator, think of it this way, being our Creator, the Lord God knows how our nature is to become familiar with the most faithful most loving people in our lives, beginning, of course, let's get back to where it really matters, beginning, of course, with Him. Up here on the board, on familiarity. Familiarity is a function of the faithfulness of others. It is something that feeds off of the predictability of the most faithful individuals we've got in our lives. And so it begs the question, who's more faithful than the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is obviously no, no one. 
So who are we more familiar with than Jesus Christ? The answer is, again, no one. He's always there. He's consistent. He literally holds the world together. Even physics, for you science nerds, even physics, you know, like Newtonian, I don't want to get into quantum, all those things, right? That's by the hand of God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens and earth, holds physics together. What if he didn't? Maybe your, your new haircut would be sticking straight out. You'd be like, oh my God, my new hair, I spent $200 on it. It's colored, it's nice. And I'd be laughing because I got none. Maybe this little thing. Stick out. It's about as good as it gets. I'm serious. The, the very laws of nature are upheld by the faithfulness of our Creator. Are you not grateful? Do you like the fact that you can turn a corner in your car going 50 and you turn and you don't go straight into a tree? I do. Why are you so familiar with it? I'm serious. These are the functions. This is what happens. This is how we become familiar. All right, taking this back to the very cause of our rejoicing always, that's where we started. Grace in our faces daily. The abundance of grace in our life is so predictable that we become familiar with it to our own detriment. To our own detriment. God is able to glorify himself despite our failures, but in our familiarity, we lose out on the rejoicing in such facts. We lose, we lose it. What did Scripture say up here on the board? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice. Be glad for grace. That's what we saw in the original. Be glad for grace. Always. It's a perspective issue. And nobody in here has the right to say, I've got nothing to be happy about. Come to me after class, and we'll have a little pep talk. You may or may not like it, but you will be edified. And it will begin with something like, I see you made it all the way back to my office. <laughs> I see you're still walking. I'm serious. I see you're still breathing. It's not hard. Rejoice. Be glad for grace always. Pray without ceasing. and everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So all the Spirit's trying to do is build a sense of unity, solidarity, and love in God's family. You all are grace blessings to me. I'm a grace blessing to you. The person to your left and right, they're a grace blessing to you. Everybody in here has the ability to encourage one another as long as it's called today. You name it. We're supposed to be in the sphere of God's grace and love. And as soon as one of us gets sucked into the world, that's when misery starts seeping in. It sort of, it sort of um, erodes things. It stains things. Now all of a sudden, things are no longer good. Our happiness is fleeting. Our contentment is gone. And if we go back to the root cause, why we're not rejoicing always, it's because we've become familiar with His grace. So that's all the Spirit's trying to say, practically, let's build some unity, solidarity, and love in God's family. For, let's, let's think big picture now. 
We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're saved and you're listening to my voice, you are my brother or my sister, literally. And it's longer lasting than blood. You're my brother or my sister in Christ, and it lasts longer than blood. And we will literally, bodily, spiritually, be spending all of eternity together. Just think about that. <laughs> You're like, oh, I had enough of you on earth. You guys are hiding out over, you know, behind pillars and, you know, oh, there he is again. Run! <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> but it's true. We're going to be spending all of eternity together. Just dwell on that. Personally, even though you're laughing at me, I can't wait. So you see how the love just flows out from me? I get all this animosity, this mocking. It's horrible. Personally, I can't wait because I really want to see all of you shining bright in your resurrection bodies. Less your sin natures. And I can't wait until there's no more sin issues that might exist between us. No more animosity or fear or lack of love especially. And I just want to, and I plan on, you ready for this? Giving each of you a big hug. Yep. Come to Papa. And I'm pretty fast. I'm just saying, I don't know if that's going to hold true in heaven, but my resurrection body is going to be pretty fast. So I'll probably be able to chase most of you down. I don't care. I'll get it. I'm serious. Don't you look forward to that? You're my brothers and my sisters. I just want to give you a big hug without the sin problem. With no stumbling, without any garbage between us. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, this this happened and you said this to me 15 years ago and you did this to me three minutes ago. Who cares? They won't exist anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's going to be pure, unadulterated love. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, it's going to be like a big hug fest, I think. Except way better than the 60s. Maybe not. But ask yourselves, if that gives you the sort of, you know, the warm and fuzzy, and it should, it's a good thing. It's, a, it's another reason to rejoice because we have hope. Even if you feel hopeless, you always have hope. Why wait on all that? <laughs> I'm going to form a line. <laughs> no, seriously, why wait on all of that? Even if a smidgen of it can be experienced today. Like, why not? What does the Bible say? For as long as it's called today, encourage one another. Do not forsake assembling together. For the sake of what? Encouragement. Go to 2 Corinthians 13, 11. So you see, all the Spirit's reminding us of, and it doesn't take very long, does it? Most of you are smiling right now. Why? Because the Spirit's reminding you of the grace in your life. If nothing else, if nothing else, which is ridiculous to say, but if nothing else, you always have hope. You say to yourself, oh, but you know, I'm having a tough time. Well, what does Scripture say? Rejoice always. Perseverance builds character. Character builds hope. Sounds like Scripture to me, just saying. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren... Oh, there it is again. Cairo, rejoice. Be glad for grace. Yeah. So at the end of his letter, and if you know anything about the first and second Corinthian letters, you know they were tough at times. 
He loved them. He said he loved them, but they were, you know, knuckleheads sometimes. They were lost in, in some ways. They were, you know, taking in. He's the, that's, that's the group that he said, hey, there's another spirit and another Jesus, and you're tolerating this stuff wonderfully, beautifully. That's the same group. But at the end of it all, he's wrapping it up. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice. Be glad for grace. Be made complete. That means matured. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace in the God of love, and peace will be with you. So here's the perspective the Spirit gave us this past week up here on the board. You might say, wait a minute. Rejoice always? These, these are commands? Yeah, they are. Rejoice. When he says rejoice, he wants you to rejoice. It's an expression of his will for you, which is another name for commands. Obedience. If God prepares us, gives us the strength, and then lights the path, the very best we can do is obey his commands. Obedience results in blessing. What did we just learn with children obeying and honoring their parents? Blessing. We looked at Luke 1.50, 1 Peter 1.13 and 19 this past week. So consider the very first command. I was thinking about this. What about commands? What about the very first command we heed as believers? Hmm. Obedience results in blessing. What about the very first command we believe, or we, excuse me, we heed as believers? Jesus said it, and so did John the Baptist. A lot. The first one? Repent. I'm not going to go into that again, but we've had an abundance of lessons on this concept of repent. And then what did he say? Believe. Repent and believe. Those are the first two real commands that we get as believers, the two big ones. It's interesting to note that the first two commands relative to our own salvation are in a very real sense the biggest of all. Sort of like the old Latin, a fortiori. If he can do the greater in saving us, he can do the lesser in sanctifying us experientially and so on. And on that note, one of the distinctions that the apostles represent during their lifetimes was their humility towards Jesus Christ, who said, repent, believe. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Those are the two big commands on the table, right? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And who gets blessed out when you follow those simple commands? You do. Matter of fact, you get eternal life. Hmm. So one of the distinctions we can focus on regarding the apostles is during their lifetime, they showed a lot, or at least a good amount of humility, which increased over time, towards Jesus. And as we've noted in a multitude of ways, not everyone whom Jesus came into contact with obeyed the two aforementioned commands to repent and believe. So what did they miss out on? It's like simple math, right? They miss out, if they don't obey, they miss out on the blessing. That's the pattern. If you disobey God's commands, you miss out on the blessings, just like we saw with you know, kids and parents and such. Hmm. I wonder why that works like that. I think it's because our Creator knows what's best for us. But you can 
figure that out on your own. By grace, Jesus prepared His disciples to be ready to expect that many of whom they tried to evangelize would not be saved, would disobey, repent and believe, repent and believe. And He had to prepare them, just like He's been preparing all of us. And some of you are now slowly stepping out on faith to engage more with the Great Commission. But part of the grace, by grace they were prepared, part of the preparation before He let them go on their own after He ascended to heaven was setting an expectation appropriately that not everybody obeys. Just like not every child obeys their parents. Not everybody obeys their Creator. As Romans 1 said, they have to actively suppress the truth about God. And they will. So, I'm trying to wrap, uh, wrap a bit of doctrinal thinking in here as well. By grace, Jesus prepared His disciples to be ready to expect that many whom they try to evangelize will not be saved. Why? Because they're disobedient. The really heartbreaking thing that many of us have seen over the years, even in our beloved North Christian Church, is that people will appear to be earnest disciples of Jesus. But as we read through, throughout Scripture, not every so-called disciple possesses saving faith. A disciple just means a student. A person can learn a lot about... I mean, if you walked... Ten steps with Jesus when he was here. You'd learn something from him. It doesn't mean you were saved, though. If you walked a few days, maybe people start throwing you in the disciple bucket. Still doesn't mean you're saved. If you, contemporarily, come to church for a week or a month or even a year or maybe your whole life, still doesn't mean you're saved. But yet, you'd be a, quote, disciple, a learner of, our faith, right? Still doesn't mean you're saved. Hmm. So what we've learned is that even in our own church, people will appear to be earnest disciples of Jesus, but as we read throughout Scripture, not every disciple possesses saving faith. And so eventually, they walk away from the faith. Something that is literally impossible for one of Jesus' own to do. Go to John 6.64. John 6.64. And it's interesting because this is really an issue of obedience. Whether people want to ever admit it or not is not the issue, but we all have one Creator. And He has every right, because He's sovereign, to make demands on His Creatures. But not everybody obeys. John 6, 64. Because everyone has a free will, of course. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus, now he was being followed around by crowds, right? Many of which I would assume would be called disciples. That maybe were learning for a while under him. I mean, this is the Messiah. I mean, this isn't Pastor Ed, you know. This is the Messiah, the perfect one. He would have given no cause whatsoever for stumbling other than himself in a fleshly way. But he would have never been wrong 
about anything. Everything he's taught was, was perfect and pure. But still, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That means he lost part of his, if you want to call it, you know, to make an analogy, he lost part of his local church, if you would, wherever he was going. He had followers, right? And some of them left. Because, you see, you see, you ready? They were focusing on this and not the giver of grace. They said, you can give me something. Oh, this is cool. Like, you do miracles and stuff. This is awesome. It's like a circus for them. They're not interested in what's going on behind the scenes, why he's healing multitudes of people. They're focused on, on the, the, the thing. They're not focused where they need to be focused. So when the newness wears off, and then another, you know, um, someone that could be completely possessed by a demon comes along with a, a highfalutin circus show, guess what they do? They do what a lot of people do in churches. They go to the next church. They go to the next thing. And they taste Buddhism. And they taste this denomination. And they taste, they, they taste uh, Kabbalah. And they taste all these little other religions. And, and what ends up happening is true Christianity, true believing in Christ is one of many options. That's a person who was never saved. That's not the person who Jesus owns. Huh. So, as a result, not everybody obeys, and people don't walk with him anymore. The apostle who wrote this, John, also wrote about a decade later, up here on the board, 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they, are, they all are not of us. We get that in here even, even in our little church. People come for a little while. They, they, a lot of times it's like, um, you know, the shallow soil or the, rock, you know, uh, the rocky soil or what have you, where they sprout up really quick and they're like, yeah, hallelujah, I finally found my way. Woo, this is awesome. And then two weeks later, they're, they're gone. It's like, what happened to so-and-so? It was, like an, it was like an emotional high. It was like this, whoa, yeah. All right, that's good. There was no, I mean, there was no staying power because it was all the flesh, and the flesh is powerless regarding spiritually appraised things. And the flesh doesn't, Jesus just said that, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them, and the Father's not going to draw them unless their faith is real. Unless he's ordained it. So here's where we got, but all that, we've studied that a multitude of times. Here's where we get to the truly encouraging aspects of the apostles. Look at verse 67. I love this. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, so this is going on, right? There's disciples, and some of them are just basically hightailing out of there because they're on to the next thing or whatever. You do not want to go away also, do you? So he challenges them. And here's where we ended on Thursday. Simon Peter, the apparent leader of the group, 
answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's such a magnificent statement. I think that's, that was where I left you on Thursday, up here on the board. Lord, to whom shall we go? Love it. What an awesome dynamic between their Savior pushing him a little bit. Are you going to go too? And you can almost see him stumble back again and say, well, where are we going to go? And coming back. Peter's words epitomize the one thing that separated the apostles from the rest of Jesus' disciples, some of which weren't yet saved, a la John 6, 64, 1 John 2, 19, humility. They said, where are we going to go? You're the very best. Where are we going to go? Submission, surrender are fruit of humility the essence of God's grace in salvation. Again, look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, or you have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. As a side note, I elaborated on the Greek word for believe in the latest blog, which is titled Effective Prayer. So you know that this kind of belief is a grace gift. They said in verse 69, we have believed. Well, who gave them the ability to believe? Who gave them that kind of, I think it's pistouo in the Greek, who gave them that kind of faith to believe? Well, where do you get anything worthy of such a thing? You get it from God. So God gave them grace, and he doesn't give that grace to anyone except believers so that they believe and continue to believe. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? So there was a purpose. I don't want to get into that, but that was a purpose for Judas, part of the plan. Now we meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Hmm. What you should see here is the grace orientation of the apostles, and you have to sort of give Judas a special bucket, Okay. What you should see here, though, with the rest, is the grace orientation of the apostles, starting with their leader, Peter. Grace orientation, the sphere of grace. Okay? Jesus challenged them from time to time for the following reason up here on the board. By grace they were prepared. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. Sound familiar? We spent probably a good year and a half on this emphasis from the pulpit. Have your own convictions. Have your own convictions. Get rid of all those man-made doctrines that you came to the table with. Throw them in the garbage, as Bill Johnson would say. I threw 95% of all my doctrines in the pail, and I've never been freer or happier. Is that a fair summary? He said, amen. He's just shy. Throw them away. And that's where your deliverance comes in. Why? Because, look, it's not about fancy words. Paul said that. There was very few people that wrote in the Bible that was smarter than Paul. He was arguably a genius. Who knows? Whatever. He was really smart, though, and very accomplished. And he said, I didn't come to you with superiority of wisdom and words. I just want to know him and him crucified. Is that difficult? No. Did he try to say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this... 17-syllable 
three hyphenated word. I'm going to make it up so that we're elevated, you see? So that we're above the rest of the crowd. That's a jackass. And I was one of them. I still have a little tail sticking out. Oh, right? I even have the teeth, too. So I asked God to take this thorn from me, but he won't do it. Try to get some dental work. Don't work. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. A lot of people are in bondage, in other words, to other people's convictions. If you're focusing all your time on man-made doctrines, then you don't read your Bible. The same jackasses that give you a lot of those doctrines say, don't do it, I'll do it for you, just trust me. Uh-uh, read the end of John 2. Even Jesus said, I, don't, I know man, I don't trust him. Read your own Bibles, remember? Read your own Bibles, why? Why? So that you can have your own convictions. If I can read this and have mine, then you can. There's nothing really that special about me. Well, there's a lot of special things about me, but... You know what I'm saying? No, I'm, you know, I'm being a wise guy because everybody's getting kind of tense. There's nothing special about a pastor. I don't get extra, like, you know, uh, I don't get extra, like, reading abilities. I mean, there's an awful lot of discernment that comes with it. I believe that. And there's an awful lot of um, spiritual guidance on where to go. I believe that. And there's an awful lot of authority that goes with it to, you know, use the rod sometimes or the staff, whatever is necessary to lead a flock. That I believe as well. But I do, I also believe that I don't have any special, you know, remember those secret goggles you get in Cracker Jacks or whatever? I don't have them with the little curly things. I don't have those and I go, oh, look it, I can see stuff that nobody else can see. No, that is not how it works. Pastors don't get special goggles that we put on at home and see things that you can't see. We read the exact same words. Literally. The exact same words. And literally the exact same spirit of Christ is with you, ministering to you, as he does with me. So you should wipe that all out. Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm perfect. You're not. But I'm going to be leaving. So I need you to have your own convictions. I want you to have your own convictions on this stuff. And so that's how he taught them. He then gave them his spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the word of and the spirit of Christ by grace. That's very encouraging because they don't necessarily have anything that we don't have to learn with. So with that said, this takes us pretty much back to where we began using the following paradigm in our curriculum. It's just a framework. Sending the apostles out. Jesus called them. Jesus trained them academically and on the job training, OJT. And then he sent them out. So we've sort of been on point number two for a little bit. Jesus, by grace, prepared them. He trains them, and then he sent them out. By grace, Jesus prepared his apostles for the time when he wasn't going to be around physically anymore. Up here on the board. By grace, they were prepared. So we need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12 exceptional men. He didn't say, okay, I choose you guys, I'm out of here. I'm going to go pray, I'm going to come down, I'm going to choose you, I'm out. He didn't do that at all. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. 
and you spent a lot of time doing it. Our encouragement in this series is simple, up here on the board, that God's grace never fails. God's grace never fails. Everyone in here that's saved from eternity past was what we would call elected or chosen by God. He drew each believer to himself, and he never fails. And then along comes the Bible, and here's this pastor guy and the Bible itself telling you to keep on reading your Bible, and there's a bunch of commands in there. And he says, that's good, that's all good. Read them, pray on them, my grace never fails. And my spirit will convict you of those commands even, and that won't fail. And then you're going to be able to fulfill those commands. And that won't fail. Because God's grace never fails. We know where the apostles came from. We know where they ended up. So I just want to close with one final thought and passage up here on the board. By grace they were prepared. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel We all need to be literally changed by grace through faith in order to accomplish this good work. Jesus has left His precious salvation ministry to His sheep to carry on. But He's never going to send us out without being prepared first by grace. So the apostles were just the first, if we look at the big picture, the apostles were just the first in a long line of ministers. And we are all ministers. So let us remember and be forever encouraged by this. As most of you will attest, we are born too weak to spread this magnificent gospel. There's a reason why a year or two ago you weren't out on the street. It's because you were still too weak. You needed to be prepared. You needed to be built up more. You understood it, but you never did it. Now all of a sudden you're out there doing it. Why? Like I said last week, real men do, and women. But before that, whether you liked to admit it or not, you were too weak. You were still weak, and he needed to build you up a bit. You were saved, great, but you needed to be built up. You needed to be edified, if you would. You needed to be prepared by grace. So most of you, if you're honest will attest that you're born too weak to spread this magnificent gospel. We are born incapable of sowing the good seed as the parable goes. So as our series title suggests, by grace they were prepared, the same goes for us. By grace we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. So let's survey a little more scripture to see what issues the apostles overcame by grace through faith. For starters, they lacked spiritual... This is the funny thing. They lacked spiritual understanding. So Jesus chose them knowing this. But yet He continued to encourage them to keep on praying. For wisdom even, as James wrote. Up here in the Amplified, James 1.5. If any one of you lacks wisdom to guide him through a decision or circumstance... He is to ask our benevolent God who gives to everyone generously and without rebuke or blame and it will be given to him. In other words, God's never going to mock you for going to him in prayer 
and saying, should I or should I not do this? He'll answer you if you're honest, if you're humble. But just be prepared to receive that answer. And, you know, don't receive the answer. It's not what you wanted, so you make excuses. Because we're really good at that. Well, you know, he keeps telling me to go to this church and, you know, uh, but I have all this laundry list of other things I could be doing. Or he wants me to read my Bible. But, you know, I've been working hard and I'm tired and there's no time. That's between you and the Lord. All I can tell you is there's blessings if you what? Receive and obey his commands. Didn't we just learn that in the beginning of class? Yep. I don't like that part. Well, what do you want me to tell you? You want me to lie about Scripture? You want me to lie about the essence of God? You want me to tell you lies so I can fill seats? I'm not going to do it. So let's read our passage and allow the context to build in our souls, keeping the whole scene in mind as we read. Now, just remember the previous point. Um, Jesus had left... Where am I? Uh, we'll get to it. Go to Luke 18.1. Luke 18.1. Oh, I know what it was. The uh, apostles lacked spiritual understanding. Now, just remember the scene. Luke 18.1. Remember the scene. Remember that. As we read through this passage, it's a bit lengthy, but it's worth the read for context. And then there's a punchline at the end of it that really kind of makes you giggle, but at the same time, hopefully you're encouraged. Luke 18.1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Think of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? Pray without ceasing. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the, and the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he will, find uh, will he find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see? You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes, our own homes, and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as this at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, remember the whole scene, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. In the third day he will rise again. So stop right there. Don't read. Stop. Now, consider that scene. Just, just, Jesus is just like, right? It's just grace is just flowing out of his being. He's just building, he's giving these people so much to think about, right? And most of you are probably like, yeah, I understand that, I understand that parable, I understand this, I understand that, look at that. Oh, this is great, right? Because some of you are well-trained, but okay, so look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. Oh, come on, for real? <laughs> right? They got the Messiah teaching them. They don't understand none of it. They're the chosen ones. Is that not encouraging? It's funny, right? That's why you all laughed at them. You guys are mean. <laughs> Maybe I'll just hug them in heaven. <laughs> it's very encouraging. But the disciples understood none of these things. Any questions? This is craziness, right? And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. And I, I'm going to borrow from McDonald on this, on Luke 8.34, because it really is a funny... If, especially when you have that much context. That's why I had you read that whole context because it was almost like this sort of, you know, well of context. And then it's like, they don't understand that. What? McDonald on Luke 18.34, up here on the board, their minds were so filled with thoughts of a temporal deliverer who would rescue them from the yoke of Rome and set up the kingdom immediately that they refused to entertain any other program. That is you, by the way. That's you. Some of you come to church with an agenda. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you come to church with an agenda. And it's set in stone, and it was set before, maybe even before you were even saved. And your flesh won't let it go. 
You're like, but, but I'm on this five-year plan. I got to be, you know, this and that at work. And, you know, I got to be married with two and a half kids, whatever that means. And I got to have a, a new uh, Toyota Camry or, or a Lexus or a Land Rover because I'm shooting high. But, you know, I'll take the Lexus, whatever. You know, I got to have all these things. I got I to gotta have all this stuff worked out. That's you. And that's your plans. That's exactly what was going on. That's why they were all screwed up. They had all these plans like, oh, man, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be the kingdom. Like, he's going to come right now. He's going to rule. Sorry, I'm splitting. Scratching record. What? See, their mind had to be reoriented. And that's why they didn't understand things always. Because it was literally a, a whole shift of perspective for these people. They thought this. Jesus came and said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh, it's this. Same end result, same rose bush as I like to say, but from a different angle. So their minds were so filled with thoughts of a temporal deliverer who would rescue them from the yoke of Rome and set up the kingdom immediately that they refused to entertain any other program. That's you. What are you clinging to? Your program? We often believe what we want to believe. That's one of my favorite things to think about, as, especially as a shepherd. I have literally sat down with people for long periods of time, made all the sense in the world, given all the scripture, the very best wisdom I can help with, everything, and they still believe what they want to believe even though this is in their face going, that's not true. It's totally not true. I don't know what to do. People believe what they want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into their preconceived notions. We often believe what we want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into our preconceived notions. In other words, as is the case with all of us, the fact is that the apostles, as wonderfully prepared as they were as, let's call them, end products, the road to getting there was littered with fleshly ideas about where they thought Jesus, their Messiah, was taking them. Is that not fair to say in all of you? I mean, who hasn't had a, a course redirect? Or what we would call in um, you know, nautical or aeronautical terms, um, a course correction. Who hasn't had a course correction in their life? Even in the past year. You come, you, you know, you come to the faith, you're saved, and you're like, I know exactly where I'm going, it's this way. And then he goes, nope. And you're like, oh, wow, that was strange. And then he's like, no. <laughs> That's you, Brian. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's like, you go over here. And you're like, oh, I totally got it now. No, you don't. Go over there, right? And you just, you know, you're the can behind the car. Bouncing off each other. That's why I'm telling you, when anybody tells me they have plans that are like more than six months even out, I kind of giggle to myself. I don't want to insult anybody. I really don't. But I, I literally giggle to myself because I have about 10 days afforded me. Sometimes less than 10 hours. Sometimes less than 10 minutes. So these plans that people make, read James, right? 
So you go here, you go there, you make all these plans. You're just a vapor. These plans that people make are silly. And the silliness ends up getting in, under our skin, and it, and it burrows its way in, and it undermines the grace of God. Because by grace we are what we are, right? And if he says, the very best I've got for you is over here, and your plan of attack is over here, then you have to, in humility, go, Whoop. and let's face it, some of us, it takes a long time, like the Titanic. <laughs> right? It's like three years later. And you're yelling at me the whole time, giving me venomous looks. Stop saying that! I'll get there. Right? That's why the, the apostles are encouraging. I mean, they walked with Jesus, and then look at it said. They didn't understand any of it. Oh, man, for real? Yeah, for real. So we ought to be encouraged by this, knowing that if Jesus had patience with the twelve, then he'll have patience with you. I wouldn't say go out and test his patience, per se. <laughs> I'm just saying. Don't say, oh, <laughs> that means I have like this free thing, right? Go read Romans 5 and 6. May it never be. Because it's grace, shall I just sin all the more? No, don't be an idiot. The value of patience. We tend to look at the finished product when we think about the apostles, but that is a mistake if that's all we consider. While this provides us with hope, the greater blessing is to recognize how God's grace prepared them. So there are going to be times, maybe for some of you it has happened this morning, when you simply don't understand what I'm trying to teach you. Maybe you just don't get it yet. Maybe that passage, you're kind of like, I don't really get it yet. But listen to me. You ready? Just listen to me. Do not worry about what you don't understand yet. Focus on those things that the Lord has revealed through His Spirit in you. Consider how very far the grace of God has already delivered you. Remember where you came from and be grateful always. Now that's some good perspective. That's some valuable perspective. Don't worry about the things you don't understand yet. Every time I sit down in the Bible, I learn something new. That means I don't understand a whole heck of a lot, to be honest with you, in the grand scheme of things. I'm cool with that. I'm good with it. That makes my life exciting. I kind of like it, because if I kept having to read the same book and I never got anything more out of it, I'd be like, man, this is kind of an arduous journey, isn't it? No, I read this, it's like... Just jumping off the pages with real effect in my life, and then I get the joy, part of my joy is to share it with you. And say, you ever think about this? You ever think about that? And people are like, oh. and I see little light bulbs, right? Some are like little LEDs. It's like, <laughs> some are like spotlights, right? Some are unplugged. <laughs> but I don't want you to be discouraged, if that makes sense by what you don't know. I'm telling you, it, the scripture says, imitate this guy's faith. I'm telling you right now. I don't know. I hate this. this sounds awful, doesn't it? I've been having standing here for like almost a decade now. I really don't know much. Except what I do know about the gospel. But I don't, I mean, and I say I don't know much in the sense that there's so much in here. And it, uh, come on. I know more than most people. Okay, that's cool. But that's not my measuring stick. I shouldn't compare myself against other people. I compare myself against God, and I really don't know much at all. 
And it's a good thing. Because that's what we call humility. And God gives grace to who? There you go. As soon as I start thinking I know it all, guess what stops? Grace. He's opposed to the arrogant and the proud. Huh. So here we are again in the same passage that I've opened with multiple lessons. Now I'll go back there. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. We'll close. We'll have communion service. I'm going to show the video in between, though, guys, right after I finish with the lesson. Then we'll have communion service, <clears throat> and then I'll close in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. So do not worry. Remember where you came from, and be grateful always. Consider how far he's taken you in your own life, and you will have reason. Right? First Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, be glad in grace, be glad for God's grace always. You don't need to be a spiritual giant to do that. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, read the blog. If you haven't read the blog, please read it. Prayer has been a big emphasis from the pulpit this last year. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And as my mom texted me this past week, I'll end with this. Life is good. Amen? Amen. All right, let's show this video.
could have been six feet under. I could have been lost forever. Yeah, I should be in that fire. But now there's fire inside of me. Here I am, a dead man walking. No grave gonna hold God's people. All the weight of all our evil. Lived it away, forever free. Who could believe? Who could believe? Forgiven. Forgiven. You love me even when I don't deserve it. Forgiven. I'm forgiven. Jesus, your blood makes me innocent. So I will say goodbye to every sin. I am forgiven. Oh, I am forgiven. speak about and we think about you know the grace of God and the things to be grateful for um, how about forgiven how about that you didn't deserve that you certainly didn't earn it but by grace you received forgiveness amen let's think of that when we think of our Lord this morning, 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, we don't usually do it this way. You guys want something to actually take the element? All right. Maybe it was. A, I don't know. See? See who he uses? Not many wise. Not many noble. Do we have any music at all?
my sincere apologies. 1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me remembrance of his person let's eat the bread In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for overwhelming us with grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for proving your love to us by sending your Son, our beloved Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be our substitute, for we are forgiven. May we, Lord, in light of this morning's message, always remember this grace, this simple yet most profound, gracious, loving act of the cross. And with that, always at the front of our minds, may we rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Everything, give thanks, for that is your will in us in Christ Jesus. How do we respond, Father? How do we do this thing? But maybe to respond in gratitude by obeying your commands, by loving you. We love because you first loved us. By taking your magnificent gospel, the gospel of your son, out to a world, Father, that you really, above all, want to save and come to the knowledge of you. Let us do this thing, Father. We pray that your Spirit continue to encourage us, that we, in humility, receive that blessing as well. We pray for those not able to be here this morning, and we pray for those still lost. We ask for traveling mercies as we head on out, Father, back into this world that is ruled by the God of this world that, who has mesmerized the masses. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.